Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Gina Martin Adams is our chief equity strategist here at Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Welcome. Great to have you Thank with you. us. Thank you. Nice to be here. Let's start broad here, looking at this market, maybe a market in search of, of a catalyst. What are you seeing as you yeah. look at, at equities right now? Yeah, in a, in a short term, we've entered some sort of consolidation mode. You can call it the the post-reflation trade. I don't know what you want to call it, but since the beginning of the March of the month of March, stocks have kind of been moving in a sideways direction. And in, in the grand scheme of things, it's a modest consolidation within a long-term uptrend. Um, it looks like we broke out of a pretty significant correction by the end of last year. We broke out. We confirmed a lot of long-term uptrend lines with that correction, and it's been off to the races since. So it's natural that you have these consolidations amidst the uptrend. Uh, it doesn't look like it's anything more ominous yet, but there has been some modest defensive rotation to suggest the market is is taking a pause here. Help us with the uh, the costliness of the expensiveness of stocks right now. You look yeah. at the S&P 500, the most expensive since 2002, I believe. What are you seeing there? Yeah, from a price-to-earnings perspective, the index is expensive. It's really difficult to say anything else. We're looking at about 18 times forward earnings or just under 18 times forward earnings. You know, the trouble with valuations is for a timing mechanism, they're pretty poor. I mean, they tend to trend over time. A good example, we crested the 18 times uh, level of uh, on price to earnings back in 1996, and then the market continued to move higher all the way into its peak in 2000. So if you used valuation purely as your uh, investment thesis in that time, you would have missed out on a tremendous amount of market gains. There are still values in the market. If you look at price to book, for example, you find energy stocks, financial stocks are still trading well below long-term peaks, long-term averages as well. Uh, on price to earnings, it, healthcare, telecom, and financials all screen as uh, relatively cheap compared to their long-term history. So not all of the market is extremely expensive. And when you talk about price to earnings, it's really a poor timing mechanism. So you got to be pretty careful. Why aren't valuations contracting uh, at yeah. this point? I think a lot of it is the bond market and interest rates. I mean, you know, stocks in a vacuum look expensive, but when you compare them to bonds, they look cheap. I mean, the earnings yield of 5.6% compares with a treasury yield of 2.35, 2.4, somewhere in that range. Uh, that's well above long-term average on a relative basis. So the earnings yield you get out of stocks is extremely attractive, and, and that keeps, uh, I think, a floor under valuations. The other thing is that when you look at real interest rates, the rate of the 10-year less inflation, we're still just above zero. It's you know, This is still very supportive in the long term when real, real rates are in that zero to two range, valuations rise. So you know, on a relative scale, there's still a lot of reason for stocks um, to continue to move higher. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance, David Gurr and Tom Keene. 
Gina, help me here with equities. What's what's the actuarial assumption you have in your head? I mean, everybody, it's a single-digit world. you got to be cautious. We're going to be yeah. lucky if we make 6% in a cloud of dividends. And the answer is it's been double-digit nirvana since basically since 2009. I right. exaggerate, but, you know, it's me. Right. Get over it. <laughs> yeah. what's, your, what's, your actu- what's the Gina Martin-Adams actuarial assumption? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think that one of the things – that strikes me in this cycle, when you look at 2009 to date and how well stocks have done, is that it is now um, sort of consensus to be cautious. It is very persistent sentiment that exists out there um, on a negative scale. It's everyone points out the reasons why stocks shouldn't rise instead of why stocks should continue to rise. And that in and of itself presents this wall of worry that allows for stocks to go higher. It seems very counterintuitive. But the reality is when there are few people left to sell, stocks are going to default higher. The other thing to consider is generally over time, what really matters for stocks is if the economy is growing. It doesn't matter if it's growing that slowly. It doesn't matter if it's growing quickly. If the economy is growing, stocks tend to go higher. And then the really big, uh, massive declines in stocks tend to happen when the economy slows down substantially. And we just haven't had that experience. It's been a very slow growth scenario. But that slow growth has been manageable by companies. They can cost-cut their way to success. Um, That's another sort of counterintuitive point. Nobody wants to own stocks because they're cutting costs. But the reality is that produces earnings growth. How long can that continue, though? You know, we said... We've been talking about how long can it continue since 2010, 2011. (laughs) So it seems that it can continue for a long time because companies are driven to produce bottom line earnings results, right? That's the the entire point of share ownership is is a share of that earnings result. Right. They have to have some top line, right? We experienced the 2014, 2015 energy sector correction in which the top line contracted and we saw that what that can do to overall earnings. So so you can't do this without some top line growth. But as long as that top line is growing incrementally, yeah. you can continue to cut and grow margins. David, are you with us today? I mean, you were barely here yesterday. No, I'm here. Yeah, I, rest, I rested up after the Carolina yeah, the, you know, <laughs> post-reflation, post-UNC you, game. What's the redo, the game yeah. redo they do on TV? The encore, <laughs> the classic, the right. encore yeah. presentation. Yeah. Uh, Gina, I'm sorry. Mr. Gura went to the Chapel Hill, University of Chapel Hill. Oh, that's okay. Hill, so I'll forgive him. You know, it's like an NCAA thing. Help me here. And this, Gina, I wonder if, what our audience may not know is you were wonderful through this bull market of saying, look, I'm measured, I'm conservative, I'm cautious, but I'm not going to be in cash. Yeah. What's Explain to our audience the price of saying, I'm going to be in cash. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, you've missed out on an equity market that's reaching new highs every year, except for uh, 2015. Um, it, it's been incredible to miss out on this bull trend. And uh, what's really amazing is how many people have missed out on this bull trend. If you look at equity ownership in the United States, despite the fact that stocks were reaching new highs, equity ownership among households actually shrank throughout this last cycle. So that tells you that most U.S. households have completely missed this bull market. Not only have you had a bull market in stocks, but you've had a pretty strong bull market in corporate credit, in high-yield credit, even the bond market. Rates have continued to go lower and lower and lower every year. So any asset you picked outside of cash Mm -hmm. would have made you money. And the Fed told us in 2008, 2009, that they were going to keep rates lower for longer, punishing anyone who kept money in cash savings. And that's one big lesson of this cycle is do not fight the Fed. 
Do not fight. When the Fed says they are going to keep rates low, we have to pay attention. As painful as it is and as scary as it is to take on that risk in an environment where there is, you know, a lot of uncertainty, the reality is the Fed really does have a heavy hand in driving market outcomes. Well, what's the Fed telegraphing now if you're an equities investor yeah. and you're, you're listening to what yeah. Fed policymakers have to say? What's the, what's the advice that they're giving that you should not ignore? They are saying that they are going to move the rate incredibly slowly in a very measured pace and keep rates very accommodative. Uh, that's what they're saying to me. Until they start really seriously considering contracting that balance sheet, really seriously considering moving that policy rate rapidly higher, Mm. the Fed is still on your side. The Fed's got your back, so to say, as an equity investor. I want to come back and dive into the actual Bloomberg Intelligence work you're doing, particularly on sector analysis as well. Gina Martin-Adams with us with Bloomberg Intelligence running all the equity uh, strategy product. And as I said earlier on television, what's, what's magical about Gina, combining an economic analysis with fundamental analysis and technical analysis as well. And as Michael Barr knows, that's the Kool-Aid I sip every day. Every day. Michael <laughs> Barr, you can't do it in a vacuum. And and the Kool-Aid with, with good sugar, man. The Kool-Aid. Yeah, there are other secret ingredients in the right. Kool-Aid as and well. I, and I put, on, I put on the headphones and I listen to that great band DuPont ratio. It's absolutely uh, phenomenal. For this, Gina Martin-Adams, Bloomberg Intelligence, as we look at the equity uh, markets. You, you've met John Butler, I'm sure, our oh, great yeah. Apple analyst. And, absolutely. You know, he doesn't do buy, hold, sell in Apple, but he's been brilliant when the gloom, the gloom comes at Apple's going <laughs> to die. Tim Cook is evil. When that comes in, he goes, uh, maybe not. Yeah. So help us here, away from buy, hold, sell, with the different sector calls. Uh-huh. Which sector right now Seems rational and seems like an opportunity to prosper when you look at the balance sheet and that strange thing, capital allocation. Yeah. Which sector works? So we actually, this will be near and dear to your heart, given you like the fusion of of so many different disciplines. We run a sector model that combines current technicals with uh, valuations, with estimate achievability on the I used side. it to do my basketball bracket. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this guy spits out for us what sectors have the best combination of all of these trends right now. And right now, those are very defensive, uh, consumer staples, utilities, healthcare, but also technology. So technology is the one cyclical that sort of sticks in uh, with the defensive sectors as, as looking like having, you know, it, look like, it looks like it has a pretty good combination of, uh, of trends. What role uh, is energy playing right now uh, in equities? We yeah. talked a little bit about how it played a role historically. Uh, now, when you look at energy, what, what effect is it having? Well, it's, it's only six and a half percent of the index. Yeah. So it's extremely small, which is really interesting. It's a very small share of, of the index. But nonetheless, it, it plays the role of most volatile player. It moves yeah. a lot <laughs> in one direction or another, but you can have periods of time now where Energy stocks are outright falling, and the market yeah. is not okay, because it is so small. I don't want to get you in trouble with your general counsel, Paul Sweeney. I think that's right. But, <laughs> but can you buy a, take a historical level of a sector as a percent of the Standard & Poor's 500? Can you go long energy because it's low single-digit sector, knowing someday you're going to sell it when it's 22%? I mean, can you do that? I mean, is that a strategy? Yeah, it- it could be if you have an extremely long pers- long-term long perspective and you look for these like Bloomberg Intelligence, you know, major, years. major shift- shifts in uh, market cap share, 
You'd find that energy is certainly the most depressed sector in the index right now after the recession that the energy companies went through in, in 15, 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, valuations um, still screen attractively. You know, sometimes valuations are low for a reason. That may be the case with energy. But it, it certainly screens as having the lowest price to book, lowest price to earnings ratio in the index because of the distress that it went through. So, you know, can I say that, you know, I, I would advise against if you have a long term holding period, sometimes these are great ideas. This is what deep value is all about is finding those sort of fallen angels who have been left for nothing. Um, so so maybe that's that's not a bad strategy. Talk about valuations. Let me ask about just macroeconomics and politics and the degree to which yeah. that's driving the market right now. How much attention, how much credence do you give to those uh, when yeah. you're looking at stocks? Well, I definitely look at um, policy. Mm-hmm. I, tr- I try to really rationalize politics. You and right? me both, yeah. That's right. So <laughs> with policy, monetary policy means a lot for stocks. And, and monetary policy is something we focus a lot on. We've got some research out today focused on sort of the current state of monetary policy and how it might impact the equity market, for example. For fiscal policy, we try to narrow it down to actual policies that could have an impact on earnings growth on the S&P 500. Because, you know, the truth is that we've had a lot of political events over the last several years, none of which have truly derailed the path for stocks. So you want to be pretty careful regarding your assumptions for how much politicians can actually matter for the equity market. Um, But a couple of fiscal policy issues right now do come to the forefront. One is this outright reduction in corporate tax possibility. That could actually have meaningful impact on earnings growth should it manifest within the next few years. So we did some research on that. We found that a 20% drop or a drop to 20% corporate tax rate could actually increase S&P 500 earnings growth by about 7% in 2018, should it occur. Now, I don't know if it will occur. I don't know if it will occur by 2018, but it could occur. The other thing that we think is potentially meaningful for stocks right now is repatriation. If we do get a repatriation effort passed through um, legislation, we could see a meaningful Mm -hmm. impact to certain components of the equity market. The last time we had repatriation, we saw a very significant acceleration in share buybacks. Right. Right. If we see that again, that will have a meaningful impact Mm -hmm. on S&P 500. So there are a couple of things that I think do matter. But you really have to sift through a lot of noise to find those things. Okay, Gina Martin-Adams, thank you so much for Bloomberg Intelligence on equity uh, strategy. David Gura, Tom Keene, Bloomberg Surveillance. Gary Schilling with us. I don't think it needs an introduction to our audience. People know on inflation. Let me get out of the way the call. Where's the 10-year yield in 12 months' time, Gary? I think it'll be a lot closer to 1% than where it is now. Uh, Why will rates at, go down? Yeah, yeah. Why? Uh, well, I think there's a very very good chance that we're going to see a lower, lower uh, rates of inflation, maybe even deflation. It's also, uh, secondly, it's a safe haven. And third, if you look at the yields... <laughs> on U.S. 10-year treasuries versus the sovereigns of almost every other developed country, our yields are higher. And and, and that gives yeah. a advantage to a foreign investor. And if the dollar rises, they get a <coughs> double win and they get a translation gain to boot. So the divergence and the end of the divergence is going to be our yields normalized back to where their yields are. 
Does Janet Yellen have the shilling memo? Did you send her your monthly newsletter? <laughs> well, no one, Gary, no well, one. Well, she gets it. You. I don't know if she. I don't know if she follows no, it or not. No, next to no one agrees with you. I mean, they just think either stable rates or the vectors are pointing to higher inflation. Tom, for thirty-seven years, ever since nineteen eighty-one, when that when the thirty-year was fifteen point two percent, and I said we're entering the bond rally of a lifetime. That's what the chorus has been saying. It's always uh, there's never been a period in there, and you've 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 noted this for many many years. There's never been a period in there when the majority, the consensus, said that rates are going down. It's always up. Inflation is up. Rates are up. Yeah, it's going to end at some point, but I don't think we're there yet. What's the role of cash uh, in a portfolio right now? Uh, how do you regard cash? How important is it to keep cash? At well, this point? I, I, I think, I mean, in portfolios we manage, we have a very high component of cash because it's, the markets have basically been moving sideways. And sideways movement markets are the ones that kill you. Uh, but, but, you know, cash is, uh, uh, cash is cheap. With interest rates low, there's not much advantage in, in not being in cash. So um, I think a high and, – and if you look at mutual funds, they, hire, they have a lot higher cash position than they normally do. So, you know, cash is, uh, cash is not trash. What do, you, what do you say to those like Gina Martin-Adams? We were just talking to her a moment ago, our, our chief equity strategist here at Bloomberg Intelligence, who say, uh, if you just held on to cash, if you didn't put in equities, you missed out. You are missing out uh, indeed. What's your response to, to that? Well, uh, you can pick any time thing. You know, you, you, you can prove anything by picking the right dimensions. Uh, economists used to call that growthmanship. And, and uh, sure, if you pick, if you pick the, last, uh, if you le- the last couple of months, you look past uh, uh, since the election, that's true. If you look on the last couple of weeks, not really. Do you see an end to this uh, to this bull market? You, you note here that bull market doesn't die of old age. Yeah, they uh, don't die of old age. It'll <laughs> end eventually. You know, uh, in a post World War II period, they've ended with on on two reasons. One is the Fed jacks up interest rates enough; they try to cool the economy. They say they don't want to precipitate a recession, but in eleven of twelve tries, by my reckoning, they've gotten a recession. The only soft landing was in the mid nineties. The other the other uh, uh, killer is some kind of a shock. Like the like the dot com blow off in the late nineties or the housing subprime mortgage collapse in the mid two thousands. Now I don't see anything right on the horizon that could qualify as a shock. Uh, yeah, you could get a blow up in the Middle East. You could have China major problems with their financials, but uh, I don't see anything that's really cruising for a bruising. Yeah, but I don't see the Fed jacking up rates that high either. I think they're going to move very cautiously. You and I talked earlier this morning about yen one fifty. That's a huge move from the one ten uh, level. That is ultimate or steroidal abenomics. <laughs> what does a one fifty yen do? To Mr. Abe and the nation of Japan. Well, it would make him a big hero because it would mean that he had achieved, he had achieved an objective. And more importantly, it wouldn't be just the number because I don't know the average Japanese uh, every morning wakes up and the first thing he said, where is the yen against the dollar? Yeah. I think they look at the state of the economy and they would like to see a more rapidly growing economy. But bear in mind that Japan has a very high living standard and unlike Unlike Europe and North America, right. where voters are mad as hell and they've turned to the left and right fringes, you're talking about Marie Le Pen, the French election. Yeah, Japan, yeah. you haven't seen okay. that. It's a different culture. But I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Schilling, that if you have that devaluation of a currency, you have a wealth destruction. Whose wealth is destroyed migrating from 110 to 150? 
Well, it isn't the Japanese holdings abroad. They've got the biggest holdings overseas of anybody, and it means that the value in yen terms of the dollar holdings overseas go up. And by the way, that's a very important uh, source of money for them to support their aging population. They could transfer a lot of those foreign uh, assets uh, into imports to support not only the, uh, the, those aging people, because they're, they're not going to have enough people working to support not only themselves, but all those retirees. Let's talk a little bit about China, what you're seeing there as we head to this meeting in, in Florida tomorrow uh, and, and Friday. Are you going? I'm not going. To. No, it's sorry, scary. Sorry. It's scary. No, no. It, 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 the weather's getting better up here. Yeah, you can't afford the steak either. Can uh, well, well, well. China, China's growth is slowing, and what's interesting there, it's a top-down, it's a top-down regime. Yeah. And we're seeing with Xi lately, he is becoming a big brother in the Orwellian uh, 1984 sense. In other words, they now have an effect. Uh, people uh, looking even at the local level cadre to make sure that they're thinking right. Uh, it's 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 a typical reaction of a top-down machine when it's worried about delivering on its promises. In in China, the government basically promises the populace that they'll have reasonable growth, li- higher living standards, and in return the populace uh, says we'll keep our nose out of politics. That's that's the social contract. That's being challenged now because Chinese growth, they say now six and a half percent real GDP growth this year. That's probably about twice reality, mm. uh, and 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 they are they are really scrambling, and I think they are worried about what's tossed out a lot of previous Chinese dynasties, and I call this the Mao dynasty, and that is social unrest caused by high unemployment. On the issue of of currency, uh, do you think it's going to be high on the agenda at this meeting uh, in Florida? And you look at just the reporting <clears throat> ahead of ahead of this meeting, there is. Uh, uh, a, a lot, of, a sense of confusion surrounding what what role the Chinese currency is playing in the world economy right now. Well, you, you you don't you don't of course you don't really know, but there hasn't been a lot of rhetoric out of Trump lately on the currency manipulation of of uh, the yuan, and it has actually gone up a bit recently. Of course, they they move back and forth there between linking to the dollar and linking yeah. to this back basket of currencies uh, to their advantage. And they always want to, they're doing this for manipulation purposes. And they also are trying to stem the outflow of money from uh, China, which has forced them to reduce their reserves from $4 trillion to $3 trillion to accommodate the, the outflow. But I think it'll probably more center on on trying to reduce the trade imbalance there. And the idea of, of, uh, of access to Chinese markets and intellectual property and some of these issues that are pretty pretty flagrant in, in terms of international standards, uh, and I think are rather attackable. And bear in mind, when the Xi made his speech at Davos, mm-hmm. uh, he was on the defensive. Uh, when, he, when he quotes Lincoln, which he did, you know, for the people, other people, by the people, uh, you know, this guy is on the run. I, that's not a big deal, Gary. David Gurra quotes Lincoln. <laughs> You know, <laughs> stay tuned well, for the special Lincoln segment. Where's inflation with a 1% 10 year? <laughs> you put a 1% figure on the 10 year yield quickly here. Where's inflation? It's probably zero or maybe oh, even less. On, Gary. I mean, if you look in, if you look in peacetime, peacetime is normally deflationary. We, we've looked at data going back to 1749, divided all the years into wartime and peacetime. Mm. And in wartime, the inflation rate averages. Average is 8.2%. Okay. In peacetime, it's negative half a percent. Okay. We got to go. Gary Schilling, thank you so much for rallying us up.
brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. David, it's important if you're bringing in corporate money and representing corporations that you're smarter than just being on K Street in Washington. And the careful choice is to be in the same building as the Palm Restaurant. That's really (laughs) what matters. There's a little street, Jefferson Place, and you walk down it and you turn right and there's the Palm. Our next guest is smarter than all other lobbyists in Washington because they're in the vicinity of the Palm, the acclaimed Palm Restaurant. Is there a Tom Keene caricature on the wall yet? There was going to be, (laughs) and I said I could never do that to Al Hunt. Albert Hunt holds center, front, in the back, in the deep back. Uh, from his wonderful efforts at CNN years ago. It's Nancy McLernan. She's the CEO of the Organization for International uh, Investment. She convened a group of uh, the CEOs of foreign-based companies yesterday in Washington, meeting with uh, administration officials. And let me just start with the, 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 the context of the meeting here. Uh, how did it come about? What were the main topics of discussion, Nancy? Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me on. And and it is pretty fantastic to be above the palm, I, I will say. <laughs> it's a good it's a good place to have sort of as your cafeteria. Um, so yesterday we had about a dozen uh, CEOs of U.S. subsidiaries of foreign companies. So these were the top U.S. executives at these companies. And, and the purpose of the meeting was to uh, work with the administration and Congress to consider foreign direct investment as they develop a pro-growth agenda, because foreign direct investment actually has a pretty outsized impact on the U.S. economy, even though these companies like BASF and Samsung and Airbus, uh, Panasonic, represent less than 1% of all U.S. businesses, they employ over 5% of the private sector workforce, about Mm. 6.4 million Americans much of it in the manufacturing sector. So U.S. subsidiaries of these companies employ about 2.4 million manufacturing jobs across the U.S., which is about 20% of all manufacturing jobs. Uh-huh. They, uh, they hire American scientists and engineers and do R&D here. They do about 17% of all American R&D. We had the, the pleasure they yesterday all... of talking to uh, to Barry Eccleston. I gather was at the meeting yesterday, the president of Airbus uh, Americas. Airbus, and I, I yeah. wonder, uh, we, we note the, the, the populist foment and fervor all across the, the world. How does that play out in the corporate sector for companies that are foreign-based but have American subsidiaries? How is, how is populism affecting the way they do business? Well, you know, there, there is a bit of uncertainty, but again, that was the reason uh, that these executives came into town, because their story is, um, you know, really, um, I think, impactful. And as we met with Secretary Mnuchin and Ross and Senate leaders, you could see that there was a, uh, a good understanding of the importance of uh, foreign direct investment to the U.S. economy. And I think that some perhaps didn't realize, you know, how varied foreign direct investment is from all mm-hmm. different countries around all different industries. And uh, we received a really yeah. favorable um, uh, 
response. Right. How has lobbying changed in Washington? I say this, folks, with respect for the representation going back to the Willard Hotel out of the Civil War. Did you smoke? <laughs> did you ever smoke a cigar in that corridor? The Round Robin the Bar. Willard, yeah. The Round Robin Bar. <laughs> Nancy, have you, have you done I, I the cigar? I thought you were asking me. No, yeah, no. Never smoked a cigar. Oh, okay. okay. Well, I thought maybe as a lobbyist. Has the act changed? Is Mr. Trump change the cadence and the pace of your good representation of your good clients? Well, you know, lobbying gets a bad rap. Yes. But lobbying is it's educating. And if you think of um, people who go up to Capitol Hill and talk about uh, the need for cancer research, or you, you even think about your local PTA, if you, you, you know, go educate uh, the school system on things that are important for your kids, these are all actually technically lobbying, but they don't have as much of a bad rap, right? And so lobbying is really educating. And, and policymakers actually get a great deal from understanding all different sides. Uh, the most important aspect, I think, of lobbying is transparency knowing who is going up uh, to Washington and talking to legislators and, and having it be, you know, lots of sunshine and, and uh, very open as to who's going up. And for these companies that, that came yesterday, their names are not as well known as some of our homegrown companies here in the United States, which makes it that much more important that they go to Washington and they educate. Because when someone thinks of a foreign company in the U.S., they might think of some monolithic company, not a company uh, like Samsung, mm. who uh, told this fantastic story about they acquired a small company in New Jersey a few years ago, and uh, it had you know less than 100 employees. And they they dumped a lot of money into it, spent a lot of uh, did a lot of R and D here in the United States developing technology that is now in all Samsung phones around the world. So they've given this small company this incredible global reach, and those are the stories that we went up to to Washington yesterday and talked about because um, the populist movement, I think, sort of broad brushes some of these things, and mm -hmm. uh, which made it that much more important for these, these companies to go up and sort Nancy, of tell their stories. We, we know the landmarks in Washington, Longworth, Cannon, Dirksen, and the rest, of course, the Palm among them. I guess what I'm wondering about <laughs> right. is if the, the landscape has changed. In other words, you have people in New York who just wonder what's going on in Washington under this administration. It's a different world. Uh, is the means of lobbying different? Are you having difficulty finding uh, the, the, the right people to talk to? Has that changed oh, at all? come on. The phone's ringing off the <laughs> hook. <laughs> um, you know what? I, I think that lobbying over the last several years has changed, not mm. just with this administration. I, I think that it definitely we're in an environment where it's, uh, to some extent, bottom-up, mm -hmm. right? It's not that you just go see the very top leadership or – um, you know, uh, the, the ones that, that, you know, you see on the news all the time. I, I think there is this importance more than ever before, not only to, to educate um, the, the top leaders, but, but educate the rank and file uh, in Congress, as well as the public, as well as our employees. Yeah. You know, it, the employees at our member companies that they get a paycheck from companies that are headquartered abroad need to understand the importance of global connections. And, you know, that was part of, uh, it was just, you know, yesterday was part of our, our, our broader efforts right. to get people to understand yeah. the importance uh, of global connections. And, 
you know, when people think about the global right. economy, there's a lot of focus on the trade of goods and services across borders. Right. But the cross-border investment really dwarfs that. Okay. We're going to have to leave it there, Nancy McLaren. Thank you so much. Maybe, possibly, not that we've ever been there, but we would see the beefsteak tomato capri or Andy's mixed green salad. And then after that, the prime porterhouse steak, 28 ounces at the Washington, D.C., Palm Restaurant. David, would that be feasible? I'd love that. We're going to close out with a few minutes with the most important surgeon, Toby Cosgrove, out of Williams. It's a Williams segment, folks. We're doing Arthur Levitt at Williams College. Amherst and now we're has doing a new mascot, by the Toby, way. It's the Mammoths. The Mammoths. I was going to get Arthur Amherst Levitt to College react to Mammoths. that. Yeah. And with us now, Dr. Cosgrove, of course, acclaimed at the Cleveland uh, Clinic. Toby Cosgrove, the last time we talked was, we talked was in Davos. Help me here with what your Cleveland Clinic needs from Washington in terms of Obamacare reform or some form of new Ryan or Trump care. What do you need? Well, I think we've t- uh, not got the right uh, uh, aspects of uh, health care reform. If you look at the Affordable Care Act, it basically started, tried to do three things. It tried to increase coverage. It tried to de- improve quality and tried to decrease costs. And really the issue is uh, the fact that uh, costs continue to rise. The question is how can we bring down cost of health care, which is a problem in every developed country around the world because uh, people are older and there are more things we can do for people which are uh, going to drive up costs. So if you look at it, uh, bringing down the cost of health care, there's really only two ways you can do it. One, you can have a more efficient delivery system for people who are sick. Um, And secondly, you can begin to decrease the burden of disease by keeping people out of the hospital and uh, prevent them from getting chronic diseases. And there are things that you can do legislatively and things that you can do um, administratively on on both those accounts to begin to uh, decrease the cost. I would like to see uh, us going back to the root cause of the problem, which is the escalating cost of health care. And uh, then uh, I think we would be more appropriately directed, and perhaps you could even get a bipartisan agreement on the fact that we need to decrease the cost of health care. Dr. Cosgrove, we'll talk on TV here in about half an hour time on, on Bloomberg Television, but a quick question here just about where we go from here in Washington. There, there are reports that Republicans on the Hill are taking up health care reform yet again. Do you have the sense that lawmakers are now having uh, the kinds of conversations you're talking about, that uh, we've, we've been through the politics over the last few weeks associated with health care reform, maybe now uh, with a less time-limited sense, there's a conversation about policy happening? Well, I think the policy of the Affordable Care Act uh, to begin to move from just paying for volume to uh, begin to pay for outcomes is the right uh, direction to go. Uh, the, the, the discussion, as near as I can tell from the distance of Cleveland, is that we continue to talk about how we're going to move uh, the amount of money that the government is paying and uh, to different segments and, and manage to do it in different ways. We're not really going to what I think the root cause of the problem is. Uh, too short today. Dr. Cosgrove, we're going to have to leave it there. Toby Cosgrove of the Cleveland Clinic. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. 
subscribe, and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.